Have you ever felt like the peace and joy you once had just got up and walked away? Can you remember a time in your life when the candle of hope was blown out and your bright tomorrow seemingly vanished? Well, here's the reality. The sound of the victory trumpet was once silenced in the shadow of a blood-stained cross. The sound of any future hope was silenced by the pounding of the nails. And the joy that once reverberated throughout the halls of history was silenced by a crucified king. However, even in this darkness, there was a ray of sunlight shining down on the garden of God's grace, shining down to illuminate a tree covered in compassion, a tree covered in hope, and a tree covered in peace. The seed of God's plan to dwell with man was watered by the blood-stained Perhaps you sense the somber tone and emotions that are emanating out of the words that we have been speaking, that we have been singing, words like sin, Learn words like a broken bones, words like iniquity and transactions and transgressions. You see, this weekend we focus on what for the story of redemption is the climax it is the greatest story ever told and different than most stories that we experience, whether reading or watching on a stage or watching on a screen. We, we actually get to participate in this most amazing story. And the climax that we focus on this weekend begins with a cross. The cross really is the cost of redemption. And what we do here at Ascend is preach through the Bible. We preach verse by verse, usually through a book of the Bible. But we also recognize as we do that, that this story that is the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation has themes weaving through it. It has topics that allow us to have lenses to see these themes so that we can better understand the vivid color, the vivid imagery, and the truth behind the story. And so this Holy Week, we focus on the lenses of the garden. And we looked last week at the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, there are vibrant colors as we consider the creator of the universe speaking into existence, a garden filled with vegetation, watered by a river, knowing that that garden must have been an amazing sight. It also, also must have had amazing aroma. My wife Sally and I usually take prayer walks, especially when it's warm, not so much when it's cold. And what we've enjoyed these last couple weeks is seeing the evidences of spring. The evidences of grass becoming more green. The evidences of leaves coming out on what seem to be dead trees. We've enjoyed the aroma as we walk on the sidewalks through the neighborhoods. But we've noticed something over the last few days that there's a different smell coming from a certain tree. We, we couldn't quite figure it out. We thought, is it rotting fish? Is it urine? Is it baby poop? In fact, all three of those descriptions, Google says, are descriptions of what the smell emanating from the Bradford pear smells like. 
And what's amazing as we're taking these walks and enjoying all of the vibrant colors, enjoying all of the sweet aromas, is that this Bradford pear smell permeates our walk. And so what otherwise is beautiful, what otherwise is a sweet smell, is permeated by the Bradford pear. And it's that word permeate that I want us to focus on this evening. Permeate means to spread across something. And in this case, it is a smell that takes something otherwise good and makes it rather icky. What I want us to do is as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, I I want us to see that the elements that God configured for redemption, the, the good things that God blessed us with in creation, have had sin and corruption permeate them. And so I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes because you've had the opportunity today to be able to experience the goodness of God in creation. You've been able to experience the warmth of the sun. You've been able to experience the vibrant colors of the spring. Hopefully you've been able to experience healthy relationships. But in the midst of all of this, there still are permeations of the corruption of sin. And what this is going to do is allow us to get to a place where we understand even more vividly the cost of redemption to ensure that we ourselves are redeemed. Father, as we make our way into the Garden of Gethsemane, I pray that my words would be your words. I pray that they would be clear. I pray that they would be compelling. And I pray that they would magnify Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here this evening who has not surrendered their life to Christ, if there is anyone here this evening who has not received forgiveness of their sins because of Christ, if there's anyone here this evening who is not trusting in the completed work of Christ for their salvation, may tonight be their night. May tonight be the night when they are adopted as sons and daughters into your family because of the cost that was paid for redemption. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three costs I want us to see, and what we will be doing is looking at three everyday experiences that we have in life. As Jesus and the disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane, they will be experiencing three everyday experiences, but as they do, I want you to see in the text, if you have your Bibles, that the corruption of sin is actually permeating these good experiences. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14, if you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and get to the New Testament. Mark is the second book in the New Testament in a four-book section called the Gospels. And Mark 14 is where we find ourselves. The first cost that we see is that agony permeates rest. Agony permeates rest. Now, just consider where Jesus is as we arrive at Mark chapter 14. Jesus has been with his disciples in the upper room. They have enjoyed Passover meal. He has instituted the Lord's Supper, which we will be able to enjoy at the end of this service. 
He has taught the disciples to love one another. He has dismissed Judas. He has told Peter that he would deny him three times. A lot has been going on. As Jesus often did in his earthly ministry, when a lot was going on, he looked for opportunities to rest. Look at Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. And they, the disciples and Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane in John chapter 18 is referred to as a garden. Jesus often would go to a place of seclusion, go to a place where he could get away so that he and his disciples could rest. You could write down Mark chapter 16 and verse 31. This idea of rest is an important one. And this place of Gethsemane has a special place in my heart. I'm going to ask the team to put up a pair of three pictures, actually. That's not a pair, is it? (laughs) Maybe it's Bradford pair that I have on my mind. Three pictures that I took when I was in Israel back in 2017. These three pictures are taken at a place that many believe is the proximity or the location of this Garden of Gethsemane. It is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And even as you can see over on that right picture, you can see the Temple Mount from it. Many of these trees have been dated to be nearly 2,000 years old. Some believe that many of these trees might have been in place when Jesus and his disciples made their way in Mark chapter 14. On this trip, I was with a group of pastors and we were given an opportunity to sit in this garden in seclusion. There was nobody else in there, no other tourists. It was our spot for an hour. I'll tell you, that was the most amazing experience as you're sitting there with your back to trees that might have been where Jesus and his disciples were. And they told us to pray. What a great opportunity to get away from everything. What a great opportunity to be alone near the place where Jesus and his disciples prayed. And there I sat, enjoying a moment of seclusion, enjoying a moment of rest, praying to my Creator. But you know what's interesting is that in that moment, my mind started to go other places. It started to go back home to my family. I wonder what they were doing. It started to go to my work. It started to go to emails. It started to go to, man, I wonder if that pastor that's sitting over there is struggling with the same thing. Wait, why why am I thinking that? Who cares whether or not he's struggling? This is my opportunity to pray to go, God, you're giving me so many reminders of my own sin and the the need that I have for repentance and and even that that hill that is just beyond the, the slope of the east wall of the city of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified. Wait, wonder how the royals did. Why should I even be a pastor? This isn't what I was supposed to do. And all of these thoughts of agony, of wrestling, of distraction were, were invading my moment of rest. Of course, Jesus' agony was so much more holy, but listen to what he has to say. 
He took with him, verse 33, Peter and James and John and began to greatly be distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Here Jesus was getting an opportunity for rest and yet he was experiencing distress. He was experiencing agony even to his very soul. And beloved, I I think we can relate to this, can't we? How many of you have had an opportunity to take a vacation and as the vacation comes to a close, you're thinking to yourself, oh no, I've got to go back to work. Agony. How many of you have heard stories or maybe you're here and you've experienced this, that maybe your, your dream is to one day be able to retire and how many of you heard that after a few months of retirement declare that they are bored in the middle of rest, agony. Whether you're a mountain person or a beach person or maybe both, how many of you have finally been able to go there and then experience the agony of the time has not been long enough? See, God has created us as human beings to enjoy rest, but even in our greatest times of rest, the corruption of life permeates rest with agony. And we see that by the example of Jesus in his favorite place of rest. This is why Judas likely knew that the disciples and Jesus would be there. See, the corruption of this world means even times of rest get permeated with agony. But number two, the second cost I want us to focus on is that wrestling permeates resolve. Wrestling permeates resolve. All of us, hopefully, have something in our life where we have resolve. Whether it's to love your spouse, whether it's to love your children, whether it's to work hard and, and, and honor your, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at your workplace. All of us have resolves in our lives. And so did the two groups that are in this passage. The disciples resolved to stay awake and pray, didn't they? That's why Jesus, when he came to them the third time, the disciples were embarrassed They were ashamed because they had resolved that they would stay awake and pray. Jesus had resolved, didn't he? You can write down John 6, 38. Jesus' resolve was to do the will of the Father. All, both of these groups had resolve. I had a friend, some of you might know, that I had a dream growing up of playing Major League Baseball. That was everything to me. And I had a friend who was even more resolved than I was. In fact, he took the gear shift. And for those of you who are young and don't know what a gear shift is, that's how you used to have to be able to shift your gears in your car so that you could drive. And there was this little stick in the middle. And he took off the the knob on the top and replaced it with a baseball so that he could feel the baseball when he gear shifted. That was resolved. But you know what? He, like me, did not make it to the major leagues. We had wrestling and limitations we experienced with our resolve. All of us, no matter how resolved we are in our lives, experience influences that we wrestle with. The disciples, verse 40, had eyes that were heavy. Verse 40, they were ashamed. Verse 41, three times Jesus came to them, and each time he found them not able to fulfill their resolve. Would you look at verse 36? Jesus, the one who had the resolve to do the will of the Father, listen to this. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
Isn't that an amazing prayer? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, desiring and resolved to fulfill His Father's will, ask the Father, remove this cup from me. In fact, verse 35 says that He prayed so that, if it were possible, this hour might pass. And time does not allow us to unpack this more fully, but I want you to see something in verse 36. Jesus says, but what you will. In the original language, this is emphatic. In the, in the original language, the, the two words but and not come together to make an emphatic rejection. Jesus is saying, if my will is not yours, then emphatically yours be done. What an example Jesus Christ provides for us. What an example in his prayer he models for us. But what I want you to see is even the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, in the midst of his resolve, had a wrestling. Could you let this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, your will be done. The disciples had resolved to stay awake, but because of their limitations, because of their physical limitations, their weaknesses, the lateness of the hour, they had a wrestling. So remember, this side of the garden, none of us can be so perfectly resolved that the influences of others in our life context and our own sin can perfectly be resolved. We will experience the permeation of wrestling. But then number three, the cost. Desperation permeates relationship. It's interesting, the last section of this Garden of Gethsemane story focuses on the twelve. It focuses on 11 and then 1. These were the closest relationships Jesus had. The closest relationship these men had was with Jesus. These were each other's closest companions for three years. And boy, had they experienced it all, hadn't they? Risk, danger, miracles, crowds. They had experienced so much and had stuck together through thick and thin. Relationships are an interesting study, aren't they? They usually require some sort of variables, whether it's a bloodline, whether it's participation in a group or organization, whether it's a proximity or time that you spend with someone. Those variables are usually required for relationship, but relationships can be hard, can't they? It's because healthy ones take a lot of work. Healthy ones are two-way. Healthy relationships require give and take. They require teaching and learning. They require repentance and forgiveness. And friends, I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen, but see if you can understand this biblically. In some ways, every human relationship is intended to be a shadow of the substance of the relationship we can have with God. Do you realize that? 
Every relationship you have in life, whether it's a bloodline relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, whether it's an authority to a somebody in subject, whether it's employer to employee, every relationship we have in our lives at some level is intended to be a shadow pointing us to the substance of the ultimate relationship we can have with God. These passages are intended to show you biblically how this is the case. Here we see Judas, one of the twelve. He could not cultivate a perfect relationship with Christ on his own. So when his expectations were not met, he betrayed Christ. The eleven disciples could not cultivate a perfect relationship with Christ on their own. So that when fear came, verse 50 says, they all left him and fled. Here's another quote, friends. The only path to a truly healthy relationship is through a desperate dependence on the cross. Eyes up here. This is not just for your relationship with God. This is your relationship with every human being. There is no way you can have a healthy marriage. There is no way you can have a healthy employer-employee relationship. There is no way you can have a healthy grandparent-grandchild, student-to-teacher, coach-to-player. There is no way any of these relationships can be healthy unless you are living them in a desperate dependence for the cross. There is no way you can have a healthy relationship unless the lens through which you look is a cross-centered lens. And now we've gone through the Garden of Gethsemane. And we are at a place where we see why the cross is so important. Because, beloved, listen, in the garden there was rest. In in the garden there was resolve. In the garden there was relationship. But after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, the corruption permeates all of those good things. And even though we experience the, the agony, even though we experience the wrestling Even though we experience the desperation, a path has been made way for us, for us to enjoy the original configuration of the garden. And that path is made through the cross of Jesus Christ. 